You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up to the minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and we have a really interesting episode today. I'm kind of a science nerd in a way. And that's why I love talking with today's guest. He's part of the Mississippi State University Deer Lab crew. And these guys do a lot of research on whitetails and a whole bunch of different things. And of course, my neighbor decides to mow as I'm doing this intro. So I'm going to uh, just let that pass. Anyway, I'm too lazy to, to edit that out. So anyway, um, Bronson Strickland is today's guest, and he's been on the podcast several times before, and he's going to talk about some of the research that he has done in the past. And, and it's uh, the, the first part of this episode is a real high-level, uh, almost like a BS session about deer behavior. We talk about buck breeding, and we talk about aggressive deer, and, and how does can maybe swing one way or another when it comes to big body size or big antlers and things like that. The second half of the podcast is just questions I had about research and being able to predict deer movement or deer behavior. And what and the reason I brought this up is because we've had certain companies come on before and say they have apps that can predict deer movement, right? And that you know, if you download this app and you pay for it, you're going to be able to know when to get into the woods. And it gives you an idea of a, a poor, good, great, excellent day, however they have it broken down to, to go out and hunt. And I wanted to talk with Bronson, someone who has years of deer research behind them and under them, their belt. And 
I would, I'm, I'm looking for his advice on what predictive model would be the best if it's based off collared deer movement, if it's based off weather, uh, and questions that you, the hunter, should ask before putting your faith into predictive deer uh, the predictive deer movement model that some of these apps have. So lots of good information on this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know I enjoyed recording it. Uh, real quick, if you're looking for a saddle, you need to go check out Tethered, right? Great people behind that product. They have saddles, they have platforms, they have climbing sticks, all the saddle hunting accessories that you need. And it's a great, an, a, an additional tool for your your arsenal when you're going to, to uh, go slay the beast wasp archery love their broadheads absolutely love the boss four blade um and actually in the last couple years i've been using the jackhammers but just for fun here comes the mower again we'll let it go by <laughs> there he comes and there he goes wasp archery and uh i i've been playing around with the boss four four blade again right and i dude I, I put together a couple groups with the four blade on that i was like dang maybe i'll be going my main head will be the boss four blade this year and uh maybe i'll move away from the jackhammers either way it's a wasp head love them both they both destroy whatever they hit and uh you know mechanicals and uh, uh mechanicals and fixed blades both have their benefits and you can Find out more information about what heads you may like at wasparchery.com. Discount code SN20 for 20% off. Then we have Hunt Stand. Again, always on this. Always download or always researching. Always looking for access routes. And that's what I did this week. Um, it was raining outside for just a little bit. or And it was hot as balls out this week. So I was sitting in, in my air conditioner on my phone scrolling scrolling looking around okay there's a good access route what about this tree stand location here's what i've seen in the past and i put in a whole bunch of trail cameras this weekend too so as that that cell data starts coming in i can see where i want to put this uh, uh my attention this year on some of my main farms i lost 100 acres so i got to go try to find new uh property and uh, i'll be uh, accessing and using hunt stand quite a bit discount code SN20 for 20% off. Also, um, if you want to find out more information, huntstand.com. Lastly, Vortex. If you are looking for a spotting scope, binoculars, rangefinders, uh, rifle scopes, you name it in the optics game, just go check out vortexoptics.com. They have what you need and they also have their VIP warranty, which is a lifetime warranty. If you have a pair of binoculars, you bought them 20 years ago or, you know, whenever that whenever they first came out with their first offering and they break or bust or fail or you did it or it was an accident or whatever, you, all you have to do is send it in. They will fix it for free and send it back to you. Right. On top of that, their customer service is impeccable. And uh, you guys should really just go check out vortexoptics.com for all of your optics needs. <laughs> There's the commercials for today. Huge shout out to everybody for tuning in. Man, I hope you guys enjoy this. Huge shout out to Bronson. Please go to iTunes, wherever you download your podcast, leave a review and a five-star review would be nice. Let everybody know how badass this podcast is and how much great information that we're putting out. Love you all. Let's get into today's episode. Three, two, one. 
All right, on the phone with me today, it's been a while since we've chatted, Mr. Bronson Strickland. Bronson, how are we doing, man? Hey, Dan, I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. It has been a while. Yeah, yeah. So how's your summer going so far? Hot, ridiculously, yeah. miserably hot and humid. Heat index over 110 a lot of days, so not fun to be outside. Right. So this it's the same thing with, with Iowa, right? I mean, we complain about the weather being hot and muggy this time of year. You guys are way further south than we are down in Mississippi. And like, it's always hot down there. Even in the wintertime, it's hot down there, I, I feel. So, so is this, is complaining about the heat just something you deal with? Because I feel like if, if it was so bad, people would just be like up and move, or is it just too hot to move? <laughs> yeah, it, it may be too, too hot to move. But here's the thing, Dan, is, uh, you know, when I'm watching the news in the morning, I see things like, uh, I think it was Minneapolis was going to be over a hundred or maybe a heat index mm -hmm. of 110 or is setting records. So, um, I think the deal with the South is it's always been hot. It's always going to be hot. We just have to endure it for a longer period of time, yeah. uh, than people up North. But at the same time, uh, come February, January, February, March, sometimes I'm enjoying the 60 degrees when uh y'all are living through below 30 so yeah, there you it's go. a trade-off there you go there you go well um we had some technical difficulties up front so for scheduling purposes we're gonna have to skip the for foreplay today and kind of get right into the main topic and um um and i want to i want to talk a little bit okay first off just if you guys have not heard anything I've ever done on this podcast with Bronson in the uh, in the past, he okay. Give us your your resume real quick. What do you do, um, and and what do you research and things like that? Very high level, real quick, and then uh, we'll get into the episode. Okay, so my background is deer biology and management. Uh, was born in, in Georgia, so southeastern context, went to graduate school in South Texas, so Texas deer management context, PhD here in Mississippi, so back to the southeast. So studied deer in uh, dif different ecosystems, and my job now is uh, research and outreach. So my, my friend and colleague, Steve Damaris, we co-direct the MSU Deer Lab, Steve focuses more on the research aspect of it. I collaborate with Steve on research, but my job is more focused on taking the research information we generate and distilling it in a way that people can use it and understand it. Perfect. All right. Now, here's the first question. All right. In the, in the whitetail woods, right? Um, especially in the content creator category, you'll hear a lot of people, and this has kind of changed over the years, but you'll hear a lot of people say, whitetail deer do this every time or all the time uh, a deer does this thing, okay? And that could, that could be one of a thousand different things. Over the years of spending time in the, in the tree stand and observing deer behavior and the deer herd in general, um, that's not always the case, right? I found that a deer doesn't always do said thing. So my question is, is the research that you guys do in a controlled environment, um, 
How does that differ? Maybe it's different. Maybe it's the same in a wild environment, right? So, so how do you take what you've learned in a controlled environment and apply it to a wild ecosystem, a wild environment? It's probably going to be a very unsatisfying answer, but it's likely going to be based on the context of the application. So like, for example, talking about deer behavior, how is it going to react to a particular stimulus in a controlled research setting could be very different than the way a deer would respond in the wild. And so most all of our deer, for example, are born in captivity. Uh, they're bottle fed. And so they're going to have a different relationship in how they respond to fear, for example, or smell of a human being or sound. But the, the things we do focus on that have direct, I think, you know, 100% correspondence to the wild is things like uh, nutrition, for example. How are they responding to uh, either dietary improvement? or reduction. Uh, a great example, Dan, I think we talked about this in the past, is what we did with our epigenetics study. And that, that's a study that really could not be conducted in the wild because you need to control for nutrition. Mm -hmm. You've got to make sure all the deer have the same uh, ability to acquire the same diet. So that that's one of those where you may say yeah but those are deer in captivity but having deer in captivity enabled us to answer that question okay. so it, it it's really across the board and it's 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 a it depends answer gotcha gotcha when it comes to research the outcome uh you know if you're trying to, you know, in, in a scientific equation, there's got to be variables and there's got to be what's the opposite of a variable, the, the standard or the, the, the thing control, that, the control. Right. So when the outcome, like, here's what I don't understand about like the scientific method and, and research and stuff like that is when you get a, it depends answer. Right. So how do you get it? How do you take in? It depends and then try to give an answer based off of the the answer that you get from your research when the outcome is, it depends. I, I think uh, I can draw a, a parallel to when we're in the scientific process and say writing a technical journal article and we're gonna be scrutinized and that's very healthy, we should be, but it goes out for peer review, anonymous to us, we have no idea who in the world is reviewing our work. And what we have to do is we report our results. You know, here's our hypothesis. Here's what we're doing. Here's our methods. Here's how we conducted the experiment. These are our results. And then the last part of every scientific paper is called the discussion. The discussion is where you reconcile your findings relative to what other people have found either in support or contradicting. And, and you basically place a context around your findings. For example, Dan, we might say we did this and we found this and we think this is repeatable in the wild in the southeastern U.S. in an environment like where we conducted the study in Mississippi. We have to add a caveat to say in the UP of Michigan or in Maine in a different ecosystem 
the findings could be different because there's a different suite of predators. There's a different uh, thermoregulation is different on and on and on. So we just basically have to always qualify our findings with uh, where we conducted the study. Gotcha. Okay. So kind of going all over the place here when I was, you know, I don't know if you've ever hunted um, uh, a deer herd and had the ability to not necessarily focus. It, it's not that you're trying to do it. It's this is just the outcome of, of what happens. And let's say you you put the antlers together and you rattle, okay? And mm-hmm. there's a deer that shows up every time, right? I had a I have I've had multiple experiences with this over the years where I rattle and. A, the same deer will come in every single time. Now, this this deer is not of shooter, sh- my shooter caliber, and what this does is it just gives a little insight to their their personality, right? And then we have other deer that I've seen in the past where I've I've seen them, I've tried to call at them, and they ha- they want nothing to do with any type of calling, right? Giving a little bit of insight into their their quote unquote personality. Have you guys done any type of study? Um, on your personality or like on deer individual personality and how that, how that reacts to the rest of the herd? Uh, kind of We're we're just wrapping up and we're actually using that terminology. We're calling it personality relative to movement behavior. And, and so what we're seeing, and I think a lot of people are seeing this with the GPS data, it's just opened so many eyes in, into deer behavior and deer movements. We have homebodies, Dan. We, we've yeah. got some bucks that after they disperse, they, they're there. They're, we, we, we say they're like Norm on, on Cheers. They go to the same bar. They go to the same seat. That They're very predictable. Yes. We've got some that are seasonally that way, meaning... Uh, pre-rut, rut, post-rut, they're going to have some excursions. So they, they deviate from their normal pattern. And then we've got some bucks like we've put on social media that, that just pick up and move. I mean, it, almost a migration that they will literally go 10 miles away from where their spring and summer home range is to where their fall winter. You know, we've got one that crosses the Mississippi River twice a year between summer and fall home ranges. And we're just calling that they have different personalities. We're, we're probably never going to understand the why. We, we understand they're doing it and we're describing this behavior exists. Why is a particular buck, does he fall into that category? I, I don't think we'll ever know. Dan, like you mentioned earlier too, with our in our deer pens, we see that with aggressiveness yeah, as well. That was my next question. We have some that are bullies they're bullies to other bucks. They're bullies to does. I mean, when when the testosterone is flowing in the breeding season, they're they're just a pain to be around. We have some that are that are a lot more docile. We have some with the external cues we get that hey, there's a doe in heat, and every buck ought to be paying attention to her. But it may just be the aggressive bucks at that time that are paying attention to her. The the more passive bucks are sitting back and waiting. Yeah. <laughs> we, just, we don't have any, uh, it, maybe there's a relationship to a blood testosterone level at the time. We really don't know. My, and that, that is my question is, you know, we've all, we all understand it out in the wild, you know, that a, a bigger antler deer isn't always the most dominant of, uh, creatures out in the woods when it comes to the herd itself. 
when it comes to the term aggression and you know what you guys have witnessed in the the pens does aggression usually lead to that buck maybe either being in charge or being the dominant buck or leading to more breeding opportunities we we did see something like that um it wasn't exactly it's kind of hard to quantify the the aggression but what we did find um the the single most important indicator of breeding success at least in in our study in our research facility was was body weight body mass okay age specifically so if you have a bunch of mature bucks together a bunch of middle-aged bucks together their their body weight is going to be the best predictor but there's also some aggression interacting with that but what we see over the breeding season is that being aggressive and defending your territory it does take take its toll on your body and on your body weight and so sometimes we would see a shift throughout the breeding season where the bucks that were big and aggressive at the beginning are really worn down over the course of the of the rut and you'll see a change to where some of these bucks that were very docile at the beginning then they have breeding opportunities uh at the end and you know evolutionarily that may be a very viable strategy you're going to fall into one or the other you're, you're hedging your bets yeah i might not get it on the front end but i'm going to get it on the back end yeah it's almost like that uh that old saying right where it's like uh the young the young bull says hey let's run down the hill and let's breed all of those cows meanwhile the old bull says or, or I'm going to breed one of those cows and the, the old bulls like, let's walk down the hill and breed them all. Right. So yes. like two completely different approaches, just like almost people. Right. I mean, people yep. approach things, everything different, every decision that they make in, in the world different now with, with that said, um, so, so body weight could be the like body size could be the ultimate, um, breeding factor uh is there a is there a correlation between age body weight like if you if you were to put let's just say a two three four year old in the in a pen together maybe all of them for some reason had the same body size or or things like that what is what is the ultimate determining factor in in who would who would breed that let's say one doe in that pen or if they were all chasing one doe or do you have any information like that? I, I don't know if I've, if we've done anything to specifically quantify it, but, but I'll give you my educated guess based yeah. on what we've seen and experience. It, it's uh, I'm going to use that term again, the interaction because both are at play. It, it's going to be their body size. It, it's going to be their aggression, their willingness to want to fight and, and keep in mind, fighting comes at a risk. Yes. When, when you know, every fall when you see an eyeball that, that's been gouged out, that, that, that fight came, came at a risk. And, and then also antlers play a role into that as well. But not from the perspective of don't, don't expect this correlation between inches of antler and breeding success. What I mean is that in general, does the buck have headgear that is going to offer him leverage in a fight because that's really all the antlers are in that case it's leverage twisting and pushing and so you have the aggression you have the body weight and you have the headgear and the antlers and and, and that's typically going to indicate who's going to be successful who's going to be dominant 
And, and Dan, I'll, I'll remind you, you know, we did an experiment a while back, heck, uh, seven, eight years ago, where we actually manipulated antler size. So we took the same size, same age buck, same size buck, and we cut off the antlers and switched them around. And so we had the, the same size buck with, say, 110 B and C, 120, and one with a 160. And then we paired them up beside does that are in heat, in standing heat. And most every time the, the doe favored, sidled up to the buck that had the large antlers. But, but we were controlling for body size in that context. So we, we really think that does aren't looking at bucks and assessing that it's a, it's a 150 versus a 140 or a 160 versus a 150. I don't think they have the acuity, you know, to, to yeah. really differentiate that. It's just that it is antlers indicative of a mature buck or an older age buck relative to, relative to antlers indicative of a young buck. And when you pair it up like that, they choose the older experienced buck. So antlers and body size and aggression, I think, are all playing a role and interacting. Did you guys ever do a study where uh, you removed the antlers altogether? to see it, what a, what a doe's reaction would be if a buck didn't have antlers? Yeah, the, the aforementioned study where we were just measuring body weight and breeding success, the antlers were removed okay. in, in that, for that experiment, yeah. And then they would lead, they, the does would lean towards the bigger body size. Yeah, and in that, in that experiment, the bucks were in the pen with the doe. Okay. So breeding could actually take place. When we manipulated antlers, we had to have a, a study design where a doe could choose A or B. It's like those studies with mice where you go down the corridor and you got to go to the left or to the right. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So we had a doe and estrus in the middle and to her left and to her right were two different bucks. Gotcha. And displaying different characteristics. Okay. And they and she would choose the bigger body size or the bigger antlers. Yes. Okay. In yeah. that, in that controlled. Okay. That's really, right. that's really, but what, what you're taking out of the equation at that point is aggression. And, um, so if it was the doe's ultimate choice, she would go for body size and, or, uh, antler size. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's what we found okay. and we think would, would be advantageous. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. So, but that does that doesn't always mean. I mean, that doesn't always mean that that particular buck gets to breed because if you added in aggression, and this is just hypothetical, the outcome could be different if the smaller bodied sized or the smaller antlered a deer was potentially more aggressive. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I wouldn't expect that if the buck was a lot smaller. Right. You know, he's 10% smaller, but 20% more aggressive. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think you're going to see that with a five and a half year old buck versus a two and a half year old buck, for right. example. Right. Yeah. I had a, I had a deer several years ago and I still think about him every once in a while, especially when I'm in the, the tree stand, seeing a young deer come in and maybe grunt or chase it, you know, that, that mid October time frame where the buck is ready to breed, but the does are not. Mm -hmm. And he's, he was a three year old and he, he 
he had a, I'm guessing like a, a, a low 130s style rack, um, decent body size for a three-year-old, you know, nothing too crazy big, but definitely not small. Uh, maybe to the untrained eye, a guy could look at him and go, hey, that's a four-year-old. Okay, so right on that, flirting with that, that, uh, that border right there. He would come in to certain fields or certain staging areas that I was hunting, and he controlled it. And he was a three-year-old, and he would control it uh, enough to where he would make a racket. And I don't know if it was because other deer didn't, like other bucks didn't want to be around him. But I saw him square up and posture up next to deer that were bigger than him, both antler and body size. And he was, I'm, I think, I'm thinking he was the dominant buck. Like, even though he was young he showed enough aggression that maybe the other deer that were in his area were docile enough to say, you know what, I don't want to mess with him. And I'm assuming he, he got the breeding opportunities, even though he, I guess he, you know, there's a lot that happens in the woods when, you know, it's nighttime or things, you know, things like that. Another deer could come in and just kick his ass. But he was, he, I felt like he was the dominant buck because of his, aggression now i don't know if there's a question there but i've seen that play out in the woods and so that's why that line i was interested in that line of questioning well let me give you uh i'll give you my personal experience okay. i remember being so troubled i was an undergraduate at the time so many 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 years ago but i was so troubled by this i could not make it square up in my brain and uh it was a very similar situation dan where <clears throat> i was in the stand and it was a, one of those wonderful mornings where I'm getting to see deer and a lot of deer behavior. So I'm, you know, got my binocular and I'm, I'm zooming in and watching this really cool stuff. And it was a middle-aged buck and he was making a rub. Just, yeah. just seeing and watching that. About that time, I hear a, a deer running and by all accounts, it, it, it's a doe displaying that, that she's an estrus, you know. And sure enough, the doe comes trotting by me. And, and then I hear more deer coming. I had a bow in my hand. Like, All right, get ready. Here it comes. It's going to be a bigger buck following this doe in heat. And I, I get ready. And here comes this yearling spike. <laughs> and the, the doe is in the doe's about 20, 30 yards from me. And that older buck is about 20 to 30 yards on the other side. So the older buck is like 60 yards from me. And I'm just, I'm waiting. I'm going, okay, well, this buck is going to stop rubbing his antlers and he's going to chase this doe. She's obviously in heat. This little buck is chasing her. He paid no attention. I mean, he literally turned around, looked at her, stuck his nose in the air and went back to rubbing his antler. Meanwhile, that little yearling buck is just annoying the heck out of her yeah. and, and chased her out of sight. And I was like, how, how can that be? That doe is obviously in heat. Why did that buck... And I went and talked to my advisor at the time, and his answer was pretty clear. He says, it's probably just experience. He's probably assessing at the time that that doe is just coming in to into estrus. She's not in standing heat yet, and he's going to know which way she goes. He can follow up with her later, yeah. but he's not going to waste his time right now. Yeah. And this young, inexperienced yearling, you know, he has no idea. Yeah. That, uh, that, that exact same scenario happened with a 190 inch deer one year. Um, I had a, I had a group of three does, a, a doe group walk by me, my wind, dude, my wind was perfect. 
Bronson. I, 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 I it, this giant shows up and he's, he's following these, this doe group or no, he showed up first and he was in the thicket and he was kind of just, he made a scrape, a, a very small scrape. He was kind of rubbing, not nothing aggressive, right? Just kind of observing the area. He was looking into the timber, the, the open timber. Here comes this group of three does. He was downwind of them and they all worked by me 23 yards. I can still remember it. 23 yards broadside. And I go, it's going to happen. He had his, he had his head up, he lip curled and he walked the opposite direction. And I'm just, and, and so that right there is a perfect example of what you just mentioned. Like this buck. And at the time I'm thinking he was an eight, eight year old. He knew those deer were not standing right now mm-hmm. those does were not ready to stand and he's not going to chase them he'll get them the neck he'll get them when they are right and so right. and so the the other little deer in the area that were pestering him like you said it wouldn't have been a problem for this buck to come in and be like uh you're in my spot buddy you know like yeah get out of yeah. here one one posture and they're gone type deal you know and then, Dan, it kind of does beg the question, when you do these studies, you know, genetic analyses re- reveal that uh, even in populations, like take your classic South Texas scenario where half your bucks are mature, but you will still get the genetic signature every single time where some younger yearling and two-year-old bucks are still breeding. And so based on what we're talking about, you think, now, now how can that be? And, and the, the reason that happens is that it, it might be very opportunistic for that young buck to behave that way because their breeding opportunities are opportunistic. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's a function of how many does on a particular day or week or whatever are simultaneously in heat there's only so many mature bucks that can cover those does that are in estrus. And if you have additional does that are in estrus that aren't being courted by a mature buck, that's where the young bucks get their opportunity. Yeah. So maybe that is, that's why they're zigzagging all over the place looking for these opportunities because yeah. they have to find a vacant doe that's not being covered by an older buck. Yeah. And, I, and again, I've seen that. Right. Mm-hmm. I've seen that. Hey, how did he get so lucky? You know, I, I see some, you know, spike, spike buck or, or forky breeding uh, a younger doe. Right. And I'm just like, Jesus, man, you would think there'd yeah. be something out here chasing him, but they're probably consumed with, you know, if there is a and I think there is in, in the environment where I hunt, you know, there's the buck doe ratio is off. So that means that a majority if I had to guess. Uh, during peak breeding, uh, the ma- majority of the bucks are going to have that opportunity that you talked about. Right. So, right. So, all right. Um, I want to talk about predictive modeling. Okay. You guys have done a lot of research um, using collared deer studies, talking about movement, talking about, you know, increase of movement, talking about lulls, you know, like, uh, you know, you hear the, the term lull and, and things like that when it comes to deer movement per se. All right. So th- there are these apps. There's multiple apps that have come out where the predictive model is all based off of collared deer studies. And, and that's telling hunters you should or should not uh get in the woods today or the the likelihood of deer movement is good 
uh, poor, whatever, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. My question is when it comes to predictive modeling, uh, based off of, uh, deer collared deer, is there, is there something that we should watch out for when, um, utilizing or putting faith in that kind of technology? Yeah, I, I would say uh, how definitive the, the prediction is what would scare me away. And what I mean by that is, you know, Dan, with, with all the deer we've had collared over the years, for to say that on these particular conditions, environmental conditions, deer aren't going to move. Mm-hmm. That, should, that should be a siren. That, yeah. that, that just can't be because deer move every single day. What, what's, what's more likely going on are just tendencies or, or increased behavioral response on a particular day. And, and then you have to be, uh, I guess, thinking about how big of a difference between, quote, a low deer movement day and a high deer movement day is 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 going to motivate you to get in the woods here's here's what i mean so stuff we'll look at is like uh yeah you might come up with statistically that there's a difference on a particular day yep deer did move more on that day but then you have to look at what we call in research the effect size what what's the deviation from the norm what would they normally do and so you might say Yep, they did move more on this day, but it was only 5% more. So I can sit back and say, from a statistical standpoint, scientific standpoint, I can say, yep, on this particular day with these particular conditions, deer are going to move more. But the next question is, how much more? And is a 5 or 10% chance, is that enough? Well, that's really, I think, based on you and, and how, how you process that information. So here's an example. It might be that I've got three days. It's coming up this weekend. I, I've, I've got three potential days. I can only hunt one. Well, I'm going to choose to hunt the day where there might be that 10% chance yeah. or 20% chance that deer might move more. So that was really long-winded, Dan, but I guess to circle back to your question, um, it would scare me if it was a, a yes or no, zero or one type or binary answer. If it were binary, yeah. I would move away. Yeah. So h- how would a guy, you know, all the research that you've done, how would a guy try to decipher what uh, is considered deer, good deer movement? L- okay, so l- let's just say this. I download an app. It tells me I'm going to... Um, uh, there is a, it's a, let's just say there's three options. There's poor, good, and great. Okay. Uh, and it's telling me today is a good day, but tomorrow is going to be a great day. What, what kind of questions should I be asking either myself or the, maybe even the, the people who come up with this predictive model of what the difference between poor, good, and great deer movement is that's uh that's a really good question and uh, (laughs) i really don't have an answer for you uh at this point um it 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 may simply be that dan Mm -hmm. i mean it may be simply asking them what what it what's the difference 
um, you know, based on their the algorithms that are that are used to predict, you know, what is the what's the likelihood of seeing deer on a poor day versus the likelihood of seeing deer or buck movement on a good day? I think you would just have to pose that question to them. Yeah. If if there was a let's just compare two predictive models for a second. And I don't know if you guys have done any research on this. We're going to have one that is collared deer movement. And then one that is a predictive model based off weather patterns. Is there one that you would say would lead someone to a, a more, I don't know what the word is, accurate uh, prediction of deer movement? If, is it actual deer movement or could it, could you also get away with a predictive model based off of uh, weather patterns? I think, Dan, reframing the question just a little bit, yep. I think I would put more weight into a model derived from the area that you hunt. Yeah. So if I'm in Florida, I'm probably going to go with more southeastern data sets and models derived from that Yep. versus, versus something, say, in Michigan. Okay. Okay. It, and the, the weather extremes there are going to be completely different. So I think the answer is kind of implicit there that, you know, somebody in Florida or South Carolina is not dealing with the same weather intensity or it's completely different. Yeah. You know, you're dealing with heat in the South versus snow and cold up North. Yeah. Let me ask you this. This is, and you can even pass on this question if, if uh, you want. Because it's 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 kind of complicated. It's a simple question, but it, the answer could be complicated. If you, knowing what you know about deer movement, deer behavior, how weather may or may not affect them, how time of year may or may not affect deer movement, herd behavior, and whatnot, how how would you design an algorithm or a um, uh, uh, an equation that would go into an app? telling me the end user how i you know when i should get into the woods is there is there an accurate model that you think that i don't know if you were if you had the knowledge or if you had the power to do so what does that equation look like i i, I think very simply and it would it wouldn't be simple the calculations wouldn't be simple yeah. but uh i think it would account for the, the time of year relative to deer biology. So oftentimes it, it can be very easy to make a mistake attributing deer movement relative to weather when the underlying condition was deer movement was relative to the rut. So you've, you, can, you, can, you can get trapped with correlation versus causation pretty easily. So you might be making correlations with, hey, on these really cool days, deer are moving more. But underlying that is that, well, you also are moving into that two to three week period. That's the peak of the rut. You see what I mean? Right, right. And so what we try to do is what is our baseline for deer movement? What is the average deer movement from day to day, week to week, month to month? And then when you establish what the baseline is, you will have little uh, troughs and valleys, peaks and valleys from day to day, spikes. 
And what caused the deviation from norm? Can we find something that's related to the deviation from norm? That that would be how I would approach it. Yeah. So I, I call the, you know, I'd call that movement killers or something like that, right? So, so based off of the time of year, we can say, you know, hey, four days from now, it should be better deer hunting than it was the previous four days, right? So every day closer to peak breeding is potentially better than the previous day. Is that an accurate statement? Say that one more time, Dan. Okay. I don't know if I understood that. So it's October 1st. And we're gonna t- we're gonna we're going to compare October first to October second or October third, okay? And so peak breeding is let's just say the fourteenth of November. Every day leading up to peak breeding should theoretically be better than the previous day. Is that an accurate I, statement? Yes, it would. The devil would be in the details of quantifying how much better on a daily scale. Right. So I would, I would think more of a weekly scale. You could see something tangible versus a daily scale. Okay, so weekly, right? So then, um, at that point, would the opposite be true on the back end of that breeding? Every every week further away from peak breeding would be uh, a, a worse time to hunt. Um. If you wanted to relate it to the acreage a deer is covering or the total distance they are moving, yes. Okay. Okay. And then in, in your in your experience with the studies that you've done, what have been some, I don't know, movement killers, like uh, an event, whether that's weather or pressure or something that just either halts it or slows it down for a period of time? Dan, we really don't see that with our data with a Southeastern context. Okay. We, we really don't see a movement killer whatsoever. And I, I just very simply relate that by, you know, deer have to eat every day. They are going to move every single day. And usually that is going to be around sunup and sundown. I mean, if there is anything at all you can take to the bank, that is it. Deer are going to move every day and it's going to be greater on average around sunup and around sundown. And that relationship will be intensified as you get closer to the peak of the rut. Gotcha. And then it will diminish after the rut. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you this, man. This is a short and sweet episode. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to uh, hop on and just chat about this. I, and this is one of those episodes where I had an idea pop into my head and I wanted to talk about it with an expert. That expert is you. So thanks for uh, hopping on and chatting with us today. Hey, yeah, you bet, Dan. Happy to. And regarding this deer movement stuff we've been talking about, we are, it's literally on my computer right now. I'm looking at it. We're working on a a document that's summarizing one of these big studies that we did. And many of the questions you asked, we have quantified those data and generated graphs. And that is going to be in a document. We'll make an announcement, hopefully before deer season. And it'll be on our social media. So on, uh, MSU Deer Lab on Facebook or Instagram or any of those. We'll provide a link. It'll be something free to download. So that's just something to keep your eye on. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, I would love to have you back on in the future and we can talk about that study. 
Absolutely. Happy to. Yep. Hey, Bronson, really appreciate it. Sure thing, man. Anytime. And the, the second I hit record again, here comes the lawnmower and we're doing the outro now. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous at this point. Um, huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp, Hunt Stand of Vortex. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Huge shout out to Bronson and the work that him and his team are doing over there, there at Mississippi State University Deer Lab. Oh, just great info, right? Someone cares enough about the deer to to do the research on them and, and get that information back to us. Like Bronson said, I don't know if he said it while recording or after we were recording, but they got some really cool intel getting their information and data getting calculated as we speak. And they're going to be putting out that out in a journal here pretty soon. So stay tuned for another episode with Bronson and uh, man, good vibes in good vibes out. Let's kick this week off on a positive note, wear your safety harness, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.